Morning, church. It's good to be with you guys. Good to be back. Last week, Will and I were down in Texas speaking at one of the churches that supports us, a partner church. Uh, and it was, you know, I, I always love getting to see the different expressions of God's church uh, across the nation as they gather together and gather for the preaching of the word and singing and thanksgiving to Jesus. But there's always a sense in which uh, when I'm gone on a Sunday, I really miss you guys. And it's not like this little cliche, like, I need to say that because I'm here. I really do. Like, I love, I love this church. I love what God is doing. I love you. I love being with you. I love singing together. I love being encouraged by your singing, uh, by the fellowship and your presence. Uh, so uh, while, while I have a responsibility, and we have a responsibility to uh, update and share with those churches that support us and give to us to see the work of the gospel advanced here in Des Moines, uh, I do... It is also painful to be apart from you. So I'm, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad that I get to uh, jump into the second week as we're looking at Advent. Uh, last week, our friend Nathan preached and introduced a four-week series through the, the Advent season where we were looking at uh, specific prophecies and promises uh, from God through his prophets about the birth of his son. Now, at the Mountain Church, we believe that the Bible is one big story that points to Jesus it's a story of good news and hope that centers on Christ, and, and he's the hero, he's the focus of the redemptive story of the Bible. Uh, but particularly through Advent, we're looking at Old Testament prophecies uh, about his birth. So last week, Nathan looked at the fact that, that Jesus was the promised king. He was the one that was the fulfillment of the prophecies given to David. Uh, in the line of David, there was, David was promised that from his lineage would come a king, that the king would establish a kingdom that would be forever a kingdom of peace and stability and uh, restoration. And this week, I get to look at another prophecy that's found in the book of Micah. So if, if you have a Bible, uh, open with me to Micah. Is that better? Okay. Should I start from the top? <laughs> uh, well, I did, uh, well, I do have this pause. I did want to, um, to highlight, I don't know where it is now, never mind. Um, our friends at Normandy Christian Church have invited us to be a part of their drive through Christmas. So last year, my family and I went to the drive through Christmas uh, sometime in December, and I have a flyer. There's some flyers out on the bar, but I just wanted to make that announcement. It's next weekend. Uh, at Normandy Christian Church, and also uh, after our Christmas Eve gathering, uh, we will have a cookie social uh, at Phil and Melly Dameron's house, so the address is provided in your handout, um, and we would love for you to join us after Christmas Eve to have a time of fellowship and enjoy cookies and uh, ors de avors together, so uh, Micah 5.2, let's get back into the passage, shall we? <clears throat> if you don't know where Book of Micah is, Micah is a small little prophet, he's considered one of the minor prophets, there's 12 of them. The book of Micah comes after the kind of the three major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. Uh, if you're kind of lost and you're like really struggling with where the book of Micah is, it's really small. Uh, there's a table of contents at the beginning of your Bible where you can find the, the specific page number in your Bible where Micah is. Uh, but before we get into our passage this morning, which is found in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, I wanted to give a brief kind of overview of the book and of the cultural context. We have a better understanding of where this promise and this prophecy is coming from. Uh, the book of Micah is named after a Hebrew prophet whose name was Micah. 
Micah prophesied about the same time as Isaiah in uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. It was about 700 BC. Uh, the last two, actually the, the, the next two prophecies that we're looking at in our Advent series will be from the prophet Isaiah, who prophesies about the same time as, as Micah did. Uh, Micah spoke on behalf of God in a period of time where there was a lot of wealth, uh, things were good for the people, but he brought accusations and warnings because the people were obtaining wealth through unjust means. So rich people were oppressing poor people, they were stealing their land, uh, they were perverting justice, prophets were lying, um, telling people that only goodness and prosperity and security would come because they were accepting bribes from the rich people. So it was not really a good thing that was going on uh, in this time. And Micah prophesies that judgment is coming. And he's kind of the, the messenger of judgment. And uh, this, is, this is the consequences of what ha- is happening. And this comes in the form of a kingdom that's going to conquer uh, the, the people of God named the Assyrians. They're going to come in and destroy. And afterwards, after Assyria, there's kind of come a nation called Babylon who's going to do more damage. So good things are not... It's, the book of Micah promises a lot of destruction. And Micah is broken up into seven chapters. Uh, But the cool thing about Micah is is not only does he have these these great woes and warnings of destruction, but he oscillates between destruction and promises of of future renewal and restoration. So, for example, all the way, pretty much chapter one, all the way through chapter two records these woes and promises of destruction. But at the very end of chapter two, Micah says this, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. So there's a little glimmer of hope. Then chapter two gets into more destruction. The prophets are being criticized and condemned in chapter two. But then in chapter three, uh, excuse me, in chapter three, the, the rulers and the prophets are criticized and condemned. But in chapter four and five, uh, Micah describes that there will be a time in the later days where there will be God rescuing and redeeming his people, establishing his people, and he's going to ascend a ruler who will stand and shepherd the flock, he shall be their peace. Of course, and then in chapter six, there's more judgment. But then at the very end of chapter seven, specifically towards the end of the chapter, uh, Micah records promises of hope and renewal. God gathering a remnant of his people. He casting their sins into the depths of the sea because of his steadfast love, his covenantal love towards his people. So where we find our, our verse this morning is found in, embedded in one of those uh, oscillating periods of hope in chapter 5, a section describing a ruler who would come and establish peace, who would be the peace and bring security to the ends of the earth. This is, this is a passage that's describing the Messiah. So let's look now, now at our text, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So this is the prophecy that we're looking at this morning. Bethlehem was a city in Judah. It was about five miles southeast of, southwest of the city of Jerusalem. It was, of course, Israel's birthplace of the second king, King David. It was also the birthplace of uh, the biblical characters of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, Ephrathah is listed at the end of Bethlehem because it was the name of the district in which Bethlehem was located. There's actually a second Bethlehem, which was uh, found in the land of Zebulun, of that tribe of Israel. So it's a way of kind of identifying this Bethlehem of Judah, right? It's it's similar to how, you know, if if you're in Des Moines, uh, you say Des Moines, because you don't want to be like those those Iowans, 
are those, is that Iowans? Is that how you say it? We don't want to be like Des Moines. We're Des Moines, right? It's a way of distinguishing we're on the Northwest, we're in the Pacific Northwest, right? Right, okay. I can expand on that if I wasn't clear about it. The word Bethlehem, interestingly, means bread of ho- bread, excuse me, house of bread, or house of food. And Ephrathah means fruitful. So the literal word would mean uh, house of bread, fruitful, or house of fruit. Wow, I'm tying up my tongues. Um, house of food, fruitful. Almost to signify that, that God would be providing for his people in this place bountifully. Uh, through his people by sending a ruler. And, and Micah says that this ruler would both be future and ancient. He says, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. See that? So he's coming forth, but he's from old. Now that might, that might even be a reference to the fact that the Messiah would be the son of God, but it, it also probably more specifically refers to the fact that he would be from the lineage that was given from old, referencing he would be from the lineage of David. So he's from old. He, he is from the lineage of David, the king who would establish an eternal kingdom. Now, upon first glance, you might be thinking, okay, uh, that's one verse. And here's a prophecy that says, Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And wasn't Jesus born in Bethlehem? So let's pray and you guys have a good week. Not so fast, right? There's more here. Um, and I, you know you don't have to you don't really have to be that familiar with the Bible to know that that it was promised and Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? There's Christmas, the classic Christmas carols that we sing. There's a song, "A Little Town of Bethlehem." Uh, I was I was doing some research and I didn't realize how much Bethlehem is found in Christmas songs. It's found in uh, "O Come All Ye Faithful," "The First Noel," "Angels We Have Heard on High," "Hark the Herald Angels Sing." There's many songs that include this idea that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. Right? So although that, this prophecy is very clear and we see it. We see how Advent is a fulfillment of Scripture. The, the Messiah was promised to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's it. I want us to look at why. Why might God have chosen Bethlehem? Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? So if you're taking notes or if you have your handout with you this morning, you'll see those, those, those questions that are found there underneath the sermon title and, and the text. Uh, what is the promise that God made? Why is it important? Why did God make it? And how did Jesus fulfill the promise? Questions one or three are, are clear and simple, aren't they? Question one, what is the promise God made? The future ruler would be born in Bethlehem. Question three, how did Jesus fulfill the promise? He's born in Bethlehem. Uh, in the gospel according to Matthew, there's a story of wise men coming from the east. And they stop, uh, they, for they saw the star of the king of the Jews, and they come, to, uh, they come and are looking for him to worship him. They come to a guy named Herod, who is the king of the Jews, who is king at that time. Uh, and they're asking, uh, do you know where this, this guy might be? And this kind of troubles Herod because they're looking for the king of the Jews. And Herod was king. And I imagine uh, when you hear someone looking for the king of the Jews and it's not you, you're thinking, hey, what's going on here? I'm the king and I like my kingship and I don't want other people to replace me. So Herod is troubled by that. And he asked the chief priests and the scribes, those people who knew the ancient Hebrew writings, they said, what town is the Messiah going to be born in? And they quote Micah 5 too. they say, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
So in other words, the Jewish scholars, the people during Jesus' birth, even the people who would eventually reject Jesus, they are in agreement that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So this was kind of common um, understanding and knowledge at the time that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. This is the birthplace of the Messiah. This is where Jesus is born. The the physician and and the colleague of Apostle Paul, a guy named Luke, he he wrote a detailed account of the life of Jesus and the kind of the the explosion of the church uh, in the first century. And he records in Luke 2, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration where Quirinius, that was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So there we see the, the Old Testament the scholars and the, the scribes knew it would be Bethlehem. Luke records Jesus was really born in Bethlehem. This is how he fulfills the promise. But as I mentioned earlier, I want us to, to take some time to explore what we see in that, that second question. Why might, have God, why might God have chosen this town of Bethlehem for his Messiah to be born in? The question there is, why is this promise important or why does God make it? And I want us to think about what might this teach us about the kind of life that Jesus was to live. What, what does this set the stage for the trajectory, uh, this birthplace? What does that tell us about what his life would be and, and how he would live? Uh, now, if you're familiar with the Bible, or you, you see and you understand those, those prophecies and the fulfillment of that, you might just be thinking, well, isn't it simply because, like Nathan said last week, the, the Messiah would come through the line of David, he would be the promised king, Bethlehem was from, David was from, uh, so... Jesus was born in David in kind of fulfillment with the Davidic prophecies. But Micah doesn't say that in verse 2. He doesn't say, uh, but you, O Bethlehem, you who are the great city where our King David was from, are you who would be in fulfillment to the promise of, of where David came from, you great city, because you produced our king and, and man who is described after God's own heart, guy named David. That's not what Micah says. He says in verse 2, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, Bethlehem seems like it was barely even worth counting. Like it was so insignificant and it was too small. Bethlehem by our standards would be insignificant, both in quality and probably in quantity. Bethlehem is inauspicious, it's unpromising, it's unfavorable. And this reality might not, not might, might be as significant to us in our, where we're a vastly different culture as the culture of, of first century and the, and the culture in which Jesus was born. We're not locked into living where we were born. We're not locked into the career that our dad had. For example, right, we can be born in Seattle, we can go to college in New York, and we can get a job in Denver. And that's not weird. That's what, that's what we can do in our, in our Western culture that's highly transportized and, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Transient. In the ancient biblical culture that leaned more on valuing honor and family identity, strength and power, if you had to guess or plan, where would the Messiah come from? Where would this future king who would, who would establish a forever kingdom come from? You might think, well, maybe Mizpah or Hebron or Gilgal or Jerusalem. But not Bethlehem. 
Yet it's God, God chooses to bring his promised Messiah, the great coming one, out of Bethlehem. God chooses to use a town that is small, quiet, out of the way, unassuming, unpromising. And then here's why I think why. One pastor said it like this. And I, I, I don't know if I could say it better, so I want to read this quote from you. The deepest meaning of the littlest and insignificance of Bethlehem is that God does not bestow the blessings of the Messiah, the blessings of salvation, on the basis of our greatness or our merit or our achievement. He does not elect cities or people because their prominence or grandeur or distinction. When he chooses, he chooses freely in order to magnify the glory of his own mercy, not the glory of our distinctions. He acts in this way where we can't boast in the merits or achievements of humanity, but only in the glorious mercy of God. We can't say, well, of course, he sets his favor on Bethlehem. Look at the human glory Bethlehem has achieved. All we can say is God is wonderfully free. He is not impressed by our bigness. He does nothing in order to attract attention to our accomplishments. He does everything to magnify his glorious freedom and mercy. This is how God works throughout uh, what we see in our Old Testament. Long ago, God chooses a people named the Israelites. And he says, it's not because you guys were big and great in number. I chose you simply because I loved you. God wins battles for his people, such as he, he wins this battle uh, that happens at a city named Jericho. And God wins the battle in a way that no human can get the credit. He wins the battle in a way that he sends the band in. The band goes into Jericho and they march around and they, they play music and the city collapses. And the, the band isn't recorded as saying, hey, really hit that E flat on my horn. Did you guys hear that? Did you see that sweet tambourine solo I had? That would be ridiculous. The point is clear. God did this out of his, did this, did this out of his sovereign freedom. He is about highlighting his glory and his power, not about highlighting great human achievement. When humanity asks for a king, they are given a king who is seemingly up to human standards would be the ideal king. We were recently learning about this in our study through 1 Samuel, but they get a guy who's named Saul. Saul is handsome, he's wealthy, and he's tall. He's got the full package, right? Human standards by a king? Our man is Saul. But by outward appearance, he seems like the right guy. Inwardly, he rebels and he refuses, and ultimately, he's eventually replaced. And Saul's replacement is, is not tall. He's not the oldest. He's not from a prominent family. He's not the oldest son of the best tribe. He's the youngest. He, he's not even in the original kind of calling as the, a guy named Samuel goes to anoint this king. His king's named David. He's not even in the initial grouping that David's father, Jesse, calls. When this replacement king fights a giant named Goliath, an enemy that brought terror and inflicted fear upon the people, that even Saul was cowering in fear. David wins by using a slingshot and a stone. It's not because David was so great. It's highlighting the glory of God, how God uses what is weak and is small and is humble to magnify his greatness. The Apostle Paul says it like this is recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chose Bethlehem so that no one can boast. Not because they were great or so big or so illustrious or worthy of producing greatness. The wisdom of the world might predict that God would send this ruler blazing down an angelic parade on a magnificent horse, riding in and and conquering Rome and, and the enemies of Israel. But the wisdom of God is foolishness compared to the world. Jesus came in and was born to a no name teenage virgin girl. He was born in a stable. There wasn't even room for them in the inn. He was laid in a feeding trough, the manger. It's not a typical bed. It's not not a hot buy if you were to head to Babies R Us. They don't sell feeding troughs. It'd be weird. He's countercultural. He's upside down. He overthrows what you might expect. And this, I think, sets the background for what we will see in Jesus as he's the promised servant. Yes, he's king. We saw that last week. He's fulfillment of the Davidic promise. He's going to come and establish a kingdom forever, but he's a countercultural king. He's a servant. He's going to come in. Uh, he's countercultural. He's upside down. He's born to an, an origin and a birthplace that is insignificant, to parents that are insignificant. It shows and sets the stage for the, for the humility that he will have as the ruler. How this ruler did not come from a great family, a great town. He was born a servant's birth. He lived as a humble servant. He comes from a significant background. He serves the insignificant, and ultimately he becomes insignificant. The Bible describes that Jesus, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And when you really stop to think about how hard that is to fathom, God in Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, co-eternal, existing forever, from eternity's past, became a baby. That's wild, isn't it? He subjected himself to human parents to be nursed and fed, to learn to walk and talk. This is God. The creator of the universe becomes a servant. What we see in this prophecy in in being born in Bethlehem, he's just born in a lowly town. He's born to lowly parents. He had a humble birth. And this sets the stage for him as the promised servant. So friends, let us consider what this means. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. And that God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. What is low and despised in the world. When we think about how Jesus took the form of a servant, he became flesh. He was born as a weak and a helpless baby. And may we do as as the angels do, that as when Jesus is born, a a multitude of angels comes to announce this great news, not to the elite and the wealthy of Jesus' time, the shepherds, more servants, the servants of the society, the lowly. And they sing to God, they're praising God, and they're singing this, this song, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Do you see that? Glory to God in the highest. Bethlehem doesn't get the glory. The innkeeper doesn't get the glory. The stable doesn't get the glory. No parents are worthy of his glory. God gets the glory. 
That is, the glory is not to us. The glory is to God. He has sent the promised servant to display the magnificence of his glory, the servant who will do all that he has commanded, the one who has taken the form of a servant, the one who has humbled himself by taking on human flesh and being born in the small, measly town of Bethlehem. So friends, let us say with the angels, glory to God in the highest. Let us praise God and and celebrate what Advent is about, the dawn of God's wisdom being displayed, the dawn of the promised servant coming into the world, the promised one, in fulfillment with the ancient scriptures, the birth of the expected unexpected one, Jesus Christ, the king who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, Jesus was born as the fulfillment of the promised servant and not because we are great or worthy of his service but because God is great and glorious. And Jesus is the promised servant who was born in such a way that only God could get the glory for his birth. His origin and this background sets the stage for what we will see in the life of Jesus. What prepares us for what we will see as we launch into the book of John, starting at the end of our Advent season, what we will see in Jesus. But as we think about Advent and the birth, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. May we consider these things and give glory to God, amen? Let's pray. Father, you are mysterious. You work in ways that we don't understand, that are counterintuitive and countercultural. Father, you you taught us that greatness is, is not found in being served, but in serving. Father, you taught us that greatness is found in sacrifice and in dying and in humbling ourselves. So, Father, I pray as we think about this that that you would cultivate a, a humility in us, that we, were, that we would posture ourselves towards others as being servants, as seeking to humble ourselves, that we would not seek glory for ourselves in the world that is, that we would know and, and believe that, that, yes, glorification is coming, but it is coming in the final resurrection. And in this life that is, we, we as disciples, as Jesus' people, are to be marked by the same life that Jesus lived, a life of humility and sacrifice and service. So Father, I pray that we would stand out this Christmas season, that as we seek to give gifts not to ourselves, to bless those uh, in Uganda who don't have what we have, who don't have even the, the basic needs that we have, that we would do this as an act of worship and joy, knowing that you have given us everything that we need, Father, and that there is is more blessed to give than to receive. So, Father, help us to be a humble people, a people who care about others deeply, a people who care more about uh, hearing what others have to say than, than puffing ourselves up and appearing smart and great. Father, help us to love those around us who are in need of hearing the hope and experiencing the love that you have offered to us and the promise of hope that we get to experience in Advent. Father, we love and we thank you. In your son's name that I pray, amen.